Today we conclude our series, just a four-part series on Between the Trees. If you haven't been here, that's okay. I'm going to do a little recap of the first three parts. The point of this series is to give you a very quick general overview of the story of the Scripture. Because when we read the Bible, when we open it up, it's not, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It didn't happen just in one little place. The Bible is a story that, that talks about many different people over thousands of years. But it's telling a common theme. There's a common theme to the Bible and a common story. And so today we're going to look at and hopefully bring all that together. So we began this, this series in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. It starts out great in 1 and 2, and then 3 it takes a turn, right? So the first week we looked at Adam and Eve in the Garden of, of Eden. God created the Garden for them to live in. He walked and talked with them. Everything was going great, right? In that Garden, He placed two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God puts the second tree there. Because he's not, he's not a taskmaster. He's not an ogre. He gives us a choice to choose him or not to choose him, right? So he says, Adam and Eve, there's one rule. Don't eat from this one tree in the garden. Now there's thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of trees in this garden. And God says, don't eat from the one tree. And you guys can guess what they're going to do. If you've ever had a two-year-old, three-year-old before, right? Tell them, don't do that. What do they do? Well, they go do it eventually, right? And that's Genesis chapter 3. We refer to it as the fall, where Adam and Eve choose to disobey God, choose to go their own way, do their own thing. And the result of that, of course, is sin enters the world. And when sin enters the world, this really terrible thing called death enters the world with it, right? Uh, something that we, we have to deal with to this day. Something that causes great, great agony and pain in our lives. Last week, we took a look at the opposite end of the scripture, right? Of the Bible, how it ends, Revelation 21 and 22. And what we saw was that the Garden of Eden is eventually restored, that God's putting things back together, and that one day, you and I will, like Adam and Eve got to in the beginning, we'll walk and talk with God face to face. He'll wipe every tear from our eye. There'll be no more mourning or death or crying or pain, as John tells us, because the old order of things has passed away. So what I want to do today is look a little bit in the middle. Now, you've, you're going to know this story before, but I want you to see it through different eyes, okay? So we're going to come, it's not exactly the middle of the Bible, but it's closer to the middle than the two ends that we began with, okay? So we're going to pick up a story in Luke chapter 22. Because I want, what I want you to see is that there are some common themes throughout the Bible. We begin the Bible, the Garden of Eden. It's a garden. We end the Bible in the book of Revelation, where the Garden of Eden has been essentially restored. If you read the language of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it's awful familiar, right? You go back to Genesis and go, wait, that sounds just like that. That's, that's not an accident. But look what happens here, right before Jesus is, is going to be arrested tried and then killed. Where is he? Jesus goes to pray on the Mount of Olives, and we know this place as, you can go see it today, the Garden of Gethsemane. And there in the garden, this happens. Jesus prays to his Father. He says, Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus knows what's coming in the garden, right? He knows what, what's, what he's about to face, and he's overcome by anguish, knowing that the cross is, is just hours away. And so he prays, and we talked about this earlier on, but that cup, of course, is the cup of God's wrath, right? He says, if you can take this cup, God, if you can take your wrath from me, Jesus is going to take all of sin and put it on his shoulders. 
And you and I know from the Scriptures that God can't be in the presence of sin, and Jesus knows that. And so all of God's wrath that He's been saving up because of the sins of all the people is about to be poured out on Jesus, and He knows it. And so He goes to a garden, and He prays. Not my will, God, but yours be done. And the cup, sadly, cannot be taken from Him. He has to drink of this cup, and we know what happens next. Jesus is beaten and mocked. We just just talked about this right before Easter. He's beaten, he's mocked, he's spit on, he's abused. He's he's called all kinds of names. And he's hung on a cross. And there on that cross, Jesus breathes his last. And he dies. Not all that unique, really, in ancient history. Tens of thousands, maybe more of people in, in ancient history had been crucified. It's not like it's anything new to the people who lived with Jesus. But what was new happens three days later, right? The early followers of Jesus go to, to the tomb to finish the burial process of putting spices on the body of Jesus. And what happens when they get there? Well, the angel tells them this. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. The tomb is found empty. The greatest event in world history occurs outside of Jerusalem where Jesus comes back to life. Giving you and me the promise that we can also do the same. In our excitement in the story though, we sometimes miss a few details and I want you to see something in the Gospel of John. Mary Magdalene comes to to the tomb of Jesus to finish her job of preparing his body for burial. She comes there, and the body's gone, right? And she's beside herself. And they just don't know. There's all kinds of questions right now. Who would have possibly came and stole Jesus' body? Remember, Jesus was crucified, and people who were crucified were thrown into a common grave if they were buried at all. Oftentimes, they left him on the cross and let animals eat him until they were nothing but bones. So they're thinking, the disciples are thinking, oh no, someone found out we'd buried Jesus. They've come, and they've taken his body, and they've thrown it somewhere, and she doesn't know what's going on. There's There's great confusion. And she's all by herself. Everybody else has gone home. And Mary, because she's faithful, is there at the tomb. And this is what happened. The angels, who she doesn't know are angels at this point, asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? And thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll get him. Right? In her, in her distress, she, all she wants to do is finish her job of taking care of this Jesus and the body is gone. And she doesn't know it's Jesus standing there. And she mistake, mistakes him for who? I made it bold for you so you couldn't miss it. She thinks he's the gardener. Well, if she thinks... He's the gardener. Where, it, where are they? They're in a garden. We began the story of Scripture in a garden. The story of Scripture ends in a garden. But before we get to the end, we have to go through a few more gardens, didn't we? First, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus begins the process of taking all of our sin and guilt on His own shoulders. And then three days later, we're found in another garden, and it's way better news this time, right? The tomb is empty. 
God is one. And evil has been kicked a fatal blow. And it all happens in a garden. See, that's where we started, right? Genesis chapter 2. Lord God had planted a, a garden. We ended in Revelation 22. Sure sounds like a garden. But first, to get to this garden, Jesus had to go through the Garden of Gethsemane and then the Garden Tomb. Now, if you believe in coincidences, that's great, but I believe God has a plan and that He is working it. Now, the story isn't called Between the Garden, it's called Between the Trees. Galatians 3, Paul tells us that Christ accomplished something for us on a tree. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That language should sound familiar to you if you remember Genesis chapter 3. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. What the Apostle Paul does, he takes a passage actually from Deuteronomy where it says that, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree, and he applies it to Jesus. And so what is he referring to the tree when he refers to a tree? Well, of course, it's the cross. Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus takes the curse that happened in Genesis chapter 3 that's reversed in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 that Jesus is the one who's doing the reversing of it, right? See, the plan was there from the beginning. I told you in Genesis chapter 3.15... See, when Jesus suffers on this tree, it was planned all along. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned and they go and they're receiving their punishment, what does God tell them in Genesis chapter 3.15? He says, I will put enmity, I'll put strife, I'll put conflict between you and the woman talking to the serpent, Satan, who's the embodiment of evil, right? And in between your offspring and hers, he, talking about Jesus, will crush your head. You, talking about Satan, will strike his heel. As Jesus hangs on the cross, and dies, his hill is struck. Now, I've never had a bruised hill. I hear it's extraordinarily painful to break or bruise your hill. Satan breaks or bruises Jesus' hill, metaphorically, on the cross. But in the garden tomb, Jesus deals the fatal blow to Satan's head. See, all evil can do is take our life away. That's all it's got. And when Jesus comes back to life, three days later, you know what happens, right? Death's defeated. Satan's greatest tool has been taken right from his hand. He's got nothing against us anymore. See, we began with a tree in a garden, and we end the story with a tree in the garden, but we first had to go through, Jesus had to, a tree and a garden. We live between these two trees. In the cross, the tree of life in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. And the only reason we could eat from this tree of life is because Jesus tasted death on this tree, which has become our tree of life. A tool, an instrument that was used to, to kill people in one of the worst ways humans have ever thought of. God flips it on its head. And now you wear it on your neck. You put it on your car. Or you look to it 
in times of trouble and adversity. That's what God does. He takes dead things and brings them back to life. He takes things that have been scarred and soiled and drugged through the mud of life and offers those things hope. Those things, of course, being us. All because he took the tree of death and turned it into our tree of life. See, this God of ours is a pretty amazing God who leaves no details to spare. The story doesn't end there. Look what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Colossians about this Jesus and what he's accomplished for us. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Creation, of course, harkens back to what? Genesis 1 and 2. For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Amen? He is reconciling everything back to him through the cross. And reconciliation is being put back into a right relationship. That's what that means. And so you and I, we've sinned. We've fallen short. I don't want to speak for you. I have. If maybe you haven't. Maybe you're that great. Okay? Probably not, but maybe you are. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We've all damaged the image. And I don't care if, you've sinned just, if you think you've sinned just a little bit or maybe you think you've sinned a lot. Sin is sin. We've put the scale on it. It doesn't matter. It's sin. And as soon as you break the perfect law, you have to look, stare face to face into a perfect God. And so maybe you've grown up in church your whole life and you've tried to do the right thing your whole life, or maybe you haven't. Guess what? We're all on the Titanic and it's sinking. Doesn't matter if you've done lots of sin or maybe you've committed just a little bit of sin. Doesn't matter. The standard is perfection, and you and I, we, we don't meet that standard. But here comes Jesus, and he has life preservers for us all, and he has thrown them out left and right. And all you and I have to do is is accept the free gift of grace that God is handing out rather liberally to everyone he can possibly find. See, if you have ever in your life believed that God is angry or mad at you, I don't know who told you that, but they're wrong. He's not. He should be, but he isn't. He should be mad at us, but he doesn't. See, he's a loving father. And he loves his children no matter what. No matter how good you think you may have been or maybe how bad you think you are, God loves you exactly how you are. And that will never change. His stance towards us has always been that of love. And Jesus proved it to us when he shed his blood, his innocent blood, on the cross. And he did that so you and I could be put back into a right relationship with God to reconcile, as Paul says, all things back to himself.
See, God's goal is for heaven to be full. That's his goal. And he knocks at our hearts, asking us to let him in. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden, like they had a choice between two trees, we do too. We have a choice. Do we let him in? Or do we keep being stubborn and proud and ignorant and arrogant and thinking, any of us thinking, we can do it ourselves? You can't. There's some things you just can't do yourself. And so he stands and he knocks because he is making, as John tells us in the book of Revelation, everything new. And that includes you. You are a, as Paul tells us, a new creation in Christ. So you can keep letting the sins of your past hound you down every night, or you can let them go. You can keep carrying the heavy burden and weight of your own guilt and shame on your shoulders, or you can let it go. Which one of those sounds better? It's pretty simple. And in Christ... You get to let it go. Because he's making each and every one of us new. Brand new. See, we live between the trees. We should thank God that we do. Every day. Please, don't let this moment pass if you have not yet accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And I'm not going to do an altar call thing where you come down because I'm a shy person and that would have embarrassed me to death and I would have never done that as a, per- as a kid or as an adult even. But ask the person next to you, come talk to me, come th- talk to anybody about what you need to do to make Jesus more real in your life because there's nothing like it in all the world. Nothing like it. It's a decision you will never, ever regret. Now, I'm not going to promise you that your life will be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's just going to be worth it. Who wants, if you want an easy life, I, I don't, you're going to have to bury yourself in a hole somewhere. I, guess, I don't know what you're going to do. Life's never going to be easy. And being a Christian doesn't change that. It doesn't change the easiness. We just have a God who's there with us always. So he promised us that he'd never leave us, nor would he ever forsake us. And so whether you're on the, on the, the, the peak of the mountain or you are in the depths of the valley, God is there. And he has not changed. And he cares so deeply for you that all he wants is to be in your life. That's what God wants. More than anything in all the world is you, is your heart. Why don't you give it to him? I promise things will never be the same. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity we have to come to this place and to worship you in spirit and truth. Father, we're so thankful for every person who comes here and calls this place home. Father, we ask you, with everything that we have, to help us every day to choose you, to put you first in our lives, knowing that when we do, when we put you first, everyone else will benefit, including ourselves. That when you're first, everything else will be just a little bit smoother. Knowing that it's not going to be perfect, that you never promised us a perfect life, a life without pain. That life is the life that's to come. But Father, we know that no matter what what comes our way, no matter what trial or tribulation we face on this earth, you are there with us. That you will carry us and see us through. 
So, Father, there are so many in our congregation now who, who need to know that promise, that you're with them always. And we thank you that your promises are always good, that you have always and will always keep your promises to us. God, we thank you most of all for your son Jesus, who faced death, a terrible death for us, gained nothing himself. It was all for us, to bring us back into a relationship with you, to take care of our sin once and for all. We're thankful so much that, God, that he was faithful to your mission that you gave him, that you had planned since the very beginning of how to bring us back to you. Father, help us as we leave this place and we go back to work, to school, to whatever we do all week long. Help us to be lights in a world that's too often full of darkness. Help us to, to take you everywhere we go. God, once again, we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. We pray all this in the powerful and healing name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Amen.